Chapter twelve of an essay on the trial by jury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann. Trial by Jury by Lysander Spooner. Chapter twelve. Limitations imposed upon the majority by the trial by jury. The principal objection that will be made to the doctrine of this essay is that under it a jury would paralyze the power of the majority and veto all legislation that was not in accordance with the will of the whole, or nearly the whole, people. The answer to this objection is that the limitation which would be thus imposed upon the legislative power, whether that power be vested in the majority or minority of the people, is the crowning merit of the trial by jury. It has other merits, but, though important in themselves, they are utterly insignificant and worthless in comparison with this. It is this power of vetoing all partial and oppressive legislation, and of restricting the government to the maintenance of such laws as the whole, or substantially the whole, people are agreed in, that makes the trial by jury the palladium of liberty. Without this power it would never have deserved that name. The will, or the pretended will, of the majority is the last lurking place of tyranny at the present day. The dogma that certain individuals and families have a divine appointment to govern the rest of mankind is fast giving place to the one that the larger number have a right to govern the smaller, a dogma which may, or may not, be less oppressive in its practical operation but which certainly is no less false or tyrannical in principle than the one it is so rapidly supplanting. Obviously there is nothing in the nature of majorities that ensures justice at their hands. They have the same passions as minorities, and they have no qualities whatever that should be expected to prevent them from practicing the same tyranny as minorities, if they think it will be for their interest to do so. There is no particle of truth in the notion that the majority have a right to rule or to exercise arbitrary power over the minority simply because the former are more numerous than the latter. Two men have no more natural right to rule one than one has to rule two. Any single man or any body of men, many or few, have a natural right to maintain justice for themselves and for any others who may need their assistance, against the injustice of any and all other men, without regard to their numbers, and majorities have no right to do any more than this. The relative numbers of the opposing parties have nothing to do with the question of right, and no more tyrannical principle was ever avowed than that the will of the majority ought to have the force of law, without regard to its justice or, what is the same thing, that the will of the majority ought always to be presumed to be in accordance with justice. Such a doctrine is only another form of the doctrine that might makes right. When two men meet one upon the highway, or in the wilderness, have they a right to dispose of his life, liberty, or property at their pleasure, simply because they are the more numerous party? Or is he bound to submit to lose his life, liberty, or property, if they demand it, merely because he is the less numerous party, 
or because they are more numerous than he, is he bound to presume that they are governed only by superior wisdom, and the principles of justice, and by no selfish passion that can lead them to do him a wrong? Yet this is the principle which it is claimed should govern men in all their civil relations to each other. Mankind fall in company with each other on the highway or in the wilderness of life, and it is claimed that the more numerous party, simply by virtue of their superior numbers, have the right arbitrarily to dispose of the life, liberty, and property of the minority, and that the minority are bound, by reason of their inferior numbers, to practice abject submission, and consent to hold their natural rights, any, all, or none, as the case may be, at the mere will and pleasure of the majority, as if all a man's natural rights expired, or were suspended, by the operation of a paramount law, the moment he came into the presence of superior numbers. If such be the true nature of the relations men hold to each other in this world, it puts an end to all such things as crimes, unless they be perpetuated upon those who are equal or superior in number to the actors. All acts committed against persons inferior in number to the aggressors become but an exercise of rightful authority, and consistency with their own principles requires that all governments founded on the will of the majority should recognize this plea as a sufficient justification for all crimes whatsoever. If it be said that the majority should be allowed to rule, not because they are stronger than the minority, but because their superior numbers furnish a probability that they are in the right, one answer is that the lives, liberties, and properties of men are too valuable to them, and the natural presumptions are too strong in their favor to justify the destruction of them by their fellow men on a mere balancing of probabilities, or on any ground whatever short of certainty beyond a reasonable doubt. This last is the moral rule universally recognized to be binding upon single individuals. And in the forum of conscience the same rule is equally binding upon governments, for governments are mere associations of individuals. This is the rule on which the trial by jury is based, and it is plainly the only rule that ought to induce a man to submit his rights to the adjudication of his fellow men, or dissuade him from a forcible defense of them. Another answer is, that if two opposing parties could be supposed to have no personal interests or passions involved, to warp their judgments, or corrupt their motives, the fact that one of the parties was more numerous than the other, a fact that leaves the comparative intellectual competency of the two parties entirely out of consideration, might perhaps furnish a slight, but at best only a very slight, probability that such party was on the side of justice. But when it is considered that the parties are liable to differ in their intellectual capacities, and that one, or the other, or both, are undoubtedly under the influence of such passions as rivalry, hatred, avarice, and ambition, passions that are nearly certain to pervert their judgments, and very likely to corrupt their motives, all probabilities founded upon a mere numerical majority, in one party or the other, vanish at once, and the decision of the majority becomes, 
to all practical purposes, a mere decision of chance, and to dispose of men's properties, liberties, and lives, by the mere process of enumerating such parties, is not only as palpable gambling as was ever practiced, but it is also the most atrocious that was ever practiced, except in matters of government. And where government is instituted on this principle, as in the United States, for example, the nation is at once converted into one great gambling establishment, where all the rights of men are the stakes. A few bold bad men throw the dice, dice loaded with all the hopes, fears, interests, and passions which rage in the breasts of ambitious and desperate men, and all the people, from the interests they have depending, become enlisted, excited, agitated, and generally corrupted by the hazards of the game. The trial by jury disavows the majority principle altogether, and proceeds upon the ground that every man should be presumed to be entitled to life, liberty, and such property as he has in his possession, and that the government should lay its hand upon none of them, except for the purpose of bringing them before a tribunal for adjudication, unless it be first ascertained, beyond a reasonable doubt, in every individual case, that justice requires it. To ascertain whether there be such reasonable doubt, it takes twelve men, by lot, from the whole body of mature men. If any of these twelve are proved to be under the influence of any special interest or passion that may either pervert their judgments or corrupt their motives, they are set aside as unsuitable for the performance of a duty requiring such absolute impartiality and integrity, and others substituted in their stead. When the utmost practicable impartiality is attained on the part of the whole twelve, they are sworn to the observance of justice, and their unanimous concurrence is then held to be necessary to remove that reasonable doubt which, unremoved, would forbid the government to lay its hand on its victim. Such is the caution which the trial by jury both practices and inculcates against the violation of justice on the part of the government towards the humblest individual in the smallest matter affecting his civil rights, his property, liberty, or life. And such is the contrast which the trial by jury presents to the gambler's and robber's rule that the majority have a right, by virtue of their superior numbers, and without regard to justice, to dispose at pleasure of the property and persons of all bodies of men less numerous than themselves. The difference, in short, between the two systems is this. The trial by jury protects person and property, inviolate to their possessors, from the hand of the law, unless justice beyond a reasonable doubt require them to be taken. The majority principle takes person and property from their possessors at the mere arbitrary will of a majority, who are liable and likely to be influenced in taking them by motives of oppression, avarice, and ambition. If the relative numbers of opposing parties afford sufficient evidence of the comparative justice of their claims, the government should carry the principle into its courts of justice, and instead of referring controversies to impartial and disinterested men, to judges and jurors sworn to do justice, and bound patiently to hear and weigh all the evidence and arguments that can be offered on either side, it should simply count the plaintiffs and defendants on each case, 
where there were more than one of either, and then give the case to the majority, after ample opportunity had been given to the plaintiffs and defendants to reason with, flatter, cheat, threaten, and bribe each other, by way of inducing them to change sides, such a process would be just as rational in courts of justice as in halls of legislation, for it is of no importance to a man, who has his rights taken from him, whether it be done by a legislative enactment or a judicial decision. In legislation the people are all arranged as plaintiffs and defendants in their own causes, those who are in favor of a particular law standing as plaintiffs, and those who are opposed to the same law standing as defendants. And to allow these causes to be decided by majorities is plainly as absurd as it would be to allow judicial decisions to be determined by the relative number of plaintiffs and defendants. If this mode of decision were introduced into courts of justice, we should see a parallel, and only a parallel, to that system of legislation which we witness daily. We should see large bodies of men conspiring to bring perfectly groundless suits against other bodies of men for large sums of money, and to carry them by sheer force of numbers, just as we now continually see large bodies of men conspiring to carry, by mere force of numbers, some scheme of legislation that will, directly or indirectly, take money out of other men's pockets and put it into their own. And we should also see distinct bodies of men, parties in separate suits, combining and agreeing all to appear and be counted as plaintiffs or defendants in each other's suits, for the purpose of ecking out the necessary majority. Just as we now see distinct bodies of men, interested in separate schemes of ambition or plunder, conspiring to carry through a batch of legislative enactments that shall accomplish their several purposes. This system of combination and conspiracy would go on, until at length the whole states and the whole nation would become divided into two great litigating parties, each party composed of several smaller bodies, having their separate suits, but all confederating for the purpose of making up the necessary majority in each case. The individuals composing each of these two great parties would at length become so accustomed to acting together, and so well acquainted with each other's schemes, and so mutually dependent upon each other's fidelity for success, that they would become organized as permanent associations, bound together by that kind of honor that prevails among thieves, and pledged, by all their interest, sympathies, and animosities, to mutual fidelity, and to unceasing hostility to their opponents, and exerting all their arts and all their resources of threats, injuries, promises, and bribes, to drive or seduce from the other party enough to enable their own to retain or acquire such a majority as would be necessary to gain their own suits and defeat the suits of their opponents. All the wealth and talent of the country would become enlisted in the service of these rival associations, and both would, at length, become so compact, so well organized, so powerful, and yet always so much in need of recruits, that a private person would be nearly or quite unable to obtain justice in the most paltry suit with his neighbor, except on the condition of joining one of these great litigating associations, 
who would agree to carry through his cause, on condition of his assisting them to carry through all the others, good and bad, which they had already undertaken. If he refused this, they would threaten to make a similar offer to his antagonist, and suffer their whole numbers to be counted against him. Now this picture is no caricature, but a true and honest likeness, and such a system of administering justice would be no more false, absurd, or atrocious than that system of working by majorities which seeks to accomplish, by legislation, the same ends which, in the case supposed, would be accomplished by judicial decisions. Again, the doctrine that the minority ought to submit to the will of the majority proceeds, not upon the principle that government is formed by voluntary association, and for an agreed purpose, on the part of all who contribute to its support, but upon the presumption that all government must be practically a state of war and plunder between opposing parties, and that, in order to save blood, and prevent mutual extermination, the parties come to an agreement that they will count their respective numbers periodically, and the one party shall then be permitted quietly to rule and plunder, restrained only by their own discretion, and the other submit quietly to be ruled and plundered until the time of the next enumeration. Such an agreement may possibly be wiser than unceasing and deadly conflict. It nevertheless partakes too much of the ludicrous to deserve to be seriously considered as an expedient for the maintenance of civil society. It would certainly seem that mankind might agree upon a cessation of hostilities upon more rational and equitable terms than that of unconditional submission on the part of the less numerous body. Unconditional submission is usually the last act of one who confesses himself subdued and enslaved. How any one ever came to imagine that condition to be one of freedom has never been explained. And as for the system being adapted to the maintenance of justice among men, it is a mystery that any human mind could ever have been visited with an insanity wild enough to originate the idea. If it be said that other corporations than governments surrender their affairs into the hands of the majority, the answer is that they allow majorities to determine only trifling matters that are in their nature mere questions of discretion, and where there is no natural presumption of justice or right on one side rather than the other. They never surrender to the majority the power to dispose of or, what is practically the same thing, to determine the rights of any individual member. The rights of every member are determined by the written compact to which all the members have voluntarily agreed. For example, a banking corporation allows a majority to determine such questions of discretion as whether the note of A or B shall be discounted, whether notes shall be discounted on one, two, or six days of the week, how many hours in the day their banking house shall be kept open, how many clerks shall be employed, what salaries they shall receive, and such like matters, which are in their nature mere subjects of discretion, and where there are no natural presumptions of justice or right in favor of one course over the other. But no banking corporation allows a majority 
or any other number of its members less than the whole, to divert funds of the corporation to any other purpose than the one to which every member of the corporation has legally agreed that they may be devoted, nor to take the stock of one member and give it to another, nor to distribute the dividends among the stockholders otherwise than to each one the proportion which he has agreed to accept, and all the others have agreed that he shall receive. Nor does any banking corporation allow a majority to impose taxes upon the members for the payment of the corporate expenses, except in such proportions as every member has consented that they may be imposed. All these questions, involving the rights of the members as against each other, are fixed by the articles of the association, that is, by the agreement to which every member has personally assented. What is also specially to be noticed, and what constitutes a vital difference between the banking corporation and the political corporation, or government, is, that in the case of controversy among the members of the banking corporation, as to the rights of any member, the question is determined, not by any number, either majority or minority, of the corporation itself, but by persons out of the corporation, by twelve men acting as jurors, or by other tribunals of justice, of which no member of the corporation is allowed to be a part. But in the case of the political corporation, controversies among the parties to it, as to the rights of individual members, must of necessity be settled by members of the corporation itself, because there are no persons out of the corporation to whom the question can be referred. Since, then, all questions as to the rights of the members of the political corporation must be determined by members of the corporation itself, the trial by jury says that no man's rights, neither his right to his life, his liberty, nor his property, shall be determined by any such standard as the mere will and pleasure of majorities but only by the unanimous verdict of a tribunal fairly representing the whole people, that is, a tribunal of twelve men, taken at random from the whole body, and ascertained to be as impartial as the nature of the case will admit, and sworn to the observance of justice. Such is the difference in the two kinds of corporations, and the custom of managing by majorities the mere discretionary matters of business corporations, the majority having no power to determine the rights of any member, furnishes no analogy to the practice, adopted by political corporations, of disposing of all the rights of their members by the arbitrary will of majorities. But further, the doctrine that the majority have a right to rule proceeds upon the principle that minorities have no rights in the government, for certainly the minority cannot be said to have any rights in government, so long as the majority alone determine what their rights shall be. They hold everything, or nothing, as the case may be, at the mere will of the majority. It is indispensable to a free government, in the political sense of that term, that the minority, the weaker party, have a veto upon the acts of the majority. Political liberty is liberty for the weaker party in a nation. It is only the weaker party that lose their liberties, when a government becomes oppressive. 
The stronger party, in all governments, are free by virtue of their superior strength. They never oppress themselves. Legislation is the work of this stronger party, and if, in addition to the sole power of legislating, they have the sole power of determining what legislation shall be enforced, they have all power in their hands, and the weaker party are subjects of an absolute government. Unless the weaker party have a veto, either upon the making or the enforcement of laws, they have no power whatever in the government, and can, of course, have no liberties except such as the stronger party, in their arbitrary discretion, see fit to permit them to enjoy. In England and the United States, the trial by jury is the only institution that gives the weaker party any veto upon the power of the stronger. Consequently, it is the only institution that gives them any effective voice in the government, or any guarantee against oppression. Suffrage, however free, is of no avail for this purpose, because the suffrage of the minority is overborne by the suffrage of the majority, and is thus rendered powerless for purposes of legislation. The responsibility of officers can be made of no avail because they are responsible only to the majority. The minority, therefore, are wholly without rights in the government, wholly at the mercy of the majority, unless, through the trial by jury, they have a veto upon such legislation as they think unjust. Government is established for the protection of the weak against the strong. This is the principle, if not the sole motive, for the establishment of all legitimate government. Laws that are sufficient for the protection of the weaker party are of course sufficient for the protection of the stronger party, because the strong can certainly need no more protection than the weak. It is, therefore, right that the weaker party should be represented in the tribunal, which is finally to determine what legislation may be enforced, and that no legislation shall be enforced against their consent they being presumed to be competent judges of what kind of legislation makes for their safety and what for their injury it must be presumed that any legislation which they object to enforcing tends to their oppression and not to their security there is still another reason why the weaker party or the minority should have a veto upon all legislation which they disapprove that reason is that that is the only means by which the government can be kept within the limits of the contract, compact, or constitution by which the whole people agree to establish government. If the majority were allowed to interpret the compact for themselves, and enforce it according to their own interpretation, they would, of course, make it authorize them to do whatever they wish to do. The theory of free government is that it is formed by the voluntary contract of the people individually with each other. This is the theory, although it is not, as it ought to be, the fact. In all the governments in the United States, as also in the government of England, the theory assumes that each man, who is a party to the government, and contributes to its support, has individually and freely consented to it otherwise the government would have no right to tax him for its support. For taxation, without consent, is robbery. This theory, then, necessarily supposes that this government, 
which is formed by the free consent of all, has no powers except such as all the parties to it have individually agreed that it shall have, and especially that it has no power to pass any laws except such as all the parties have agreed that it may pass. This theory supposes that there may be certain laws that will be beneficial to all, so beneficial that all consent to be taxed for their maintenance. For the maintenance of these specific laws, in which all are interested, all associate. And they associate for the maintenance of those laws only in which all are interested. It would be absurd to suppose that all would associate and consent to be taxed for purposes which were beneficial only to a part, and especially for purposes that were injurious to any. A government of the whole, therefore, can have no powers except such as all the parties consent that it may have. It can do nothing except what all have consented that it may do. And if any portion of the people, no matter how large their number, if it be less than the whole, desire a government for any purposes other than those that are common to all, and desired by all, they must form a separate association for those purposes. They have no right, by perverting this government of the whole, to the accomplishment of purposes desired only by a part, to compel any one to contribute to purposes that are either useless or injurious to himself. Such being the principles on which the government is formed, the question arises, how shall this government, when formed, be kept within the limits of the contract by which it was established? How shall this government, instituted by the whole people, agreed to by the whole people, supported by the contributions of the whole people, be confined to the accomplishment of those purposes alone which the whole people desire? How shall it be preserved from degenerating into a mere government for the benefit of a part only of those who established and who support it? How shall it be prevented from even injuring a part of its own members for the aggrandizement of the rest? Its laws must be, or at least now are, passed, and most of its other acts are performed by mere agents, agents chosen by the part of the people and not by the whole. How can these agents be restrained from seeking their own interest and the interest of those who elected them, at the expense of the rights of the remainder of the people, by the passage and enforcement of laws that shall be partial, unequal, and unjust in their operation? That is the great question, and the trial by jury answers it. And how does the trial by jury answer it? It answers it, as has already been shown throughout this volume, by saying that these mere agents and attorneys, who are chosen by a part only of the people, and are liable to be influenced by partial and unequal purposes, shall not have unlimited authority in the enactment and enforcement of laws, that they shall not exercise all the functions of government. It says that they shall never exercise that ultimate power of compelling obedience to the laws by punishing for disobedience, or of executing the laws against the person or property of any man, without first getting the consent of the people, through a tribunal, that may fairly be presumed to represent the whole, or substantially the whole, people. 
It says that if the power to make laws, and the power also to enforce them, were committed to these agents, they would have all power, would be absolute masters of the people, and could deprive them of their rights at pleasure. It says, therefore, that the people themselves will hold a veto upon the enforcement of any and every law which these agents may enact, and that whenever the occasion arises for them to give or withhold their consent, inasmuch as the whole people cannot assemble, or devote the time and attention necessary to the investigation of each case, twelve of their number shall be taken by lot, or otherwise at random, from the whole body, that they shall not be chosen by majorities, the same majorities that elected the agents who enacted the laws to be put in issue, nor by any interested or suspected party, that they shall not be appointed by, or be in any way depended upon, those who enacted the law, that their opinions, whether for or against the law that is in issue, shall not be inquired of beforehand, and that if these twelve men give their consent to the enforcement of the law, their consent shall stand for the consent of the whole. This is the mode which the trial by jury provides for keeping the government within the limits designed by the whole people, who have associated for its establishment. And it is the only mode provided either by the English or American constitutions for the accomplishment of that object. But it will, perhaps, be said that if the minority can defeat the will of the majority, then the minority rule the majority. But this is not true in any unjust sense. The minority enact no laws of their own. They simply refuse their assent to such laws of the majority as they do not approve. The minority assume no authority over the majority. They simply defend themselves. They do not interfere with the right of the majority to seek their own happiness in their own way, so long as they, the majority, do not interfere with the minority. They claim simply not to be oppressed, and not to be compelled to assist in doing anything which they do not approve. They say to the majority, We will unite with you, if you desire it, for the accomplishment of all those purposes in which we have a common interest with you. You can certainly expect us to do nothing more. If you do not choose to associate with us on those terms, there must be two separate associations. You must associate for the accomplishment of your purposes, we for the accomplishment of ours. In this case, the minority assume no authority over the majority, they simply refuse to surrender their own liberties into the hands of the majority. They propose a union, but decline submission. The majority are still at liberty to refuse the connection, and to seek their own happiness in their own way, except that they cannot be gratified in their desire to become absolute masters of the minority. But it may be asked, how can the minority be trusted to enforce even such legislation as is equal and just? The answer is, that they are as reliable for that purpose as are the majority. They are as much presumed to have associated, and are as likely to have associated, for that object, as are the majority, and they have as much interest in such legislation as have the majority. They have even more interest in it, for, being the weaker party, they must rely on it for their security, having no other security on which they can rely. 
Hence their consent to the establishment of government, and to the taxation required for its support, is presumed, although it ought not to be presumed, without any express consent being given. This presumption of their consent to be taxed for the maintenance of laws would be absurd if they could not themselves be trusted to act in good faith in enforcing those laws, and hence they cannot be presumed to have consented to be taxed for the maintenance of any laws except such as they are themselves ready to aid in enforcing. It is therefore unjust to tax them unless they are eligible to seats in a jury with power to judge of the justice of the laws, taxing them for the support of the laws on the assumption that they are in favor of the laws, and at the same time refusing them the right, as jurors, to judge of the justice of the laws, on the assumption that they are opposed to the laws, are flat contradictions. But, it will be asked, what motive have the majority, when they have all power in their own hands, to submit their will to the veto of the minority. One answer is that they have the motive of justice. It would be unjust to compel the minority to contribute by taxation to the support of any laws which they did not approve. Another answer is that if the stronger party wish to use their power only for purposes of justice, they have no occasion to fear the veto of the weaker party for the latter have a strong motives for the maintenance of just government, as have the former. Another answer is, that if the stronger party use their power unjustly, they will hold it by an uncertain tenure, especially in a community where knowledge is diffused, for knowledge will enable the weaker party to make itself, in time, the stronger party. It also enables the weaker party, even while it remains the weaker party, perpetually to annoy, alarm, and injure their oppressors. Unjust power, or rather power that is grossly unjust, and is known to be so by the minority, can be sustained only at the expense of standing armies, and all the other machinery of force, for the oppressed party are always ready to risk their lives for purposes of vengeance and the acquisition of their rights, whenever there is any tolerable chance of success. Peace, safety, and quiet for all can be enjoyed only under laws that obtain the consent of all. Hence tyrants frequently yield to the demands of justice from those weaker than themselves, as a means of buying peace and safety. Still another answer is, that those who are in the majority on one law will be in the minority on another. All, therefore, need the benefit of the veto, at some time or other, to protect themselves from injustice. That the limits within which legislation would, by this process, be confined, would be exceedingly narrow, in comparison with those it at present occupies, there can be no doubt. All monopolies, all such special privileges, all sumptuary laws, all restraints upon any traffic, bargain, or contract that was naturally lawful, note, such as restraints upon banking, upon the rates of interest, upon traffic with foreigners, etc., etc., and footnote, all restraints upon men's natural rights, the whole catalogue of mala prohibida, 
and all taxation, to which the taxed parties had not individually, severally, and freely consented, would be at an end, because all such legislation implies a violation of the rights of a greater or lesser minority. This minority would disregard, trample upon, or resist the execution of such legislation, and then throw themselves upon a jury of the whole people for justification and protection. In this way, all legislation would be nullified, except the legislation of that general nature which impartially protects the rights and subserved the interests of all. The only legislation that could be sustained would probably be such as tended directly to the maintenance of justice and liberty, such, for example, as should contribute to the enforcement of contracts, the protection of property, and the prevention and punishment of acts intrinsically criminal. In short, government in practice would be brought to the necessity of a strict adherence to natural law, and natural justice, instead of being, as it now is, a great battle in which avarice and ambition are constantly fighting for and obtaining advantages over the natural rights of mankind. End of chapter 12